Today on First Edition, a segment, a format I've always wanted to try. I'm calling it bookography. It's the story of how a notable book came into the world. And this year happens to be the 20th anniversary of The Kite Runner. And if you're around, if you've been around, you know this was one of the great literary phenomena. It's the first one I remember as an adult. I'm 25 years old, and I read it, my girlfriend read it. It's everywhere. And I wanted to do something about it. And Khaled Hussaini himself has agreed to come on and talk to me. I thought this was fascinating. I learned so much. There's a 20th anniversary edition coming out this fall, but it's also everywhere because, like I said, it's one of the most read, most enjoyed novels of the last 25, 30, 50 years. All right, so uh, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Albachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness. Um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Since The Kite Runner was your first book 20 years ago, it's also wrapped up in the story of you becoming a writer. What were your early memories of reading or being around books? I was always drawn to stories. In Kabul, I didn't really have access to a lot of libraries. We didn't have that many libraries. So there was a, a little bookstore that my father used to take me to every Friday. And I would buy, spend all my allowances on translated into Farsi novels. I also read serialized novels in magazines. 
So I think the first novel I actually read from beginning to end, I almost probably should not admit this, but I read it at the age of 10. It was serialized in a in an Iranian women's magazine that I bought weekly at this bookstore in Kabul, and it was The Exorcist. <laughs> and that was the first novel, Western novel, I ever read. Most of my reading before that was, it was a lot of poetry. It was a lot of Dari poetry, Farsi poetry, which in Afghanistan is the lingua franca. So that my my love of, of reading began in that little bookstore in Kabul. How did you start picking up an Iranian women's magazine? Was it to read The Exorcist or how did you even get on that? <laughs> there were magazines. My father would buy the magazines. He would buy three or four magazines every week. And I read the women's magazine. It was a really good magazine, actually. A lot of, hmm. a lot of interesting articles. And they always published fiction, which I loved. So I always, they also published serialized detective novels. They published serialized Mike Hammer novels by Mickey Spillane. So I would read those serialized as well. So I was just a little precocious at the age of 10, reading things that probably wouldn't meet parental <laughs> perusal today. Wow. And you know the history way better than I ever will. I've tried to brush up a little bit. I'm guessing that magazine wasn't being published by 92? You know, that was in the, the pre-revolution days in Iran. So that was pre-Ayatollah and all that. So this was in the mid-1970s. Yeah, I'm making a note to myself to go figure out what that was and what the story of that magazine and what became of the people working on it was. Can, you said that Persian poetry is the lingua franca of Afghanistan and the wider region, and it's a long and varied history. Can you talk about how that influenced you or why it was important to you? Afghanistan poetry from cradle to grave is how people communicate. I'll give you an illustration. In 2010, I went to Kabul and visited a historical site, a beautiful royal palace that once was um, full of splendor and, and trees and flowers and had these wonderful grand staircases and marble columns. And it was really uh, modeled after Versailles. And it became one of the, the ground zeros of the civil war in the 1990s and was demolished beyond recognition. Revisited in 2010, this hawking, massive debris and, and battered building. And on the walls, I saw a lot of graffiti. And so much of the graffiti was poetry by Rumi, by Hafez, by Saadi, by other people. It just, to me, was illustrated how deeply poetry is ingrained in the soul, in the Afghan soul. You can go to distant villages and you will meet peasants who've never read a book in their life, have, that don't even know how to read and write, and can recite you verse after verse um, of poetry. My grandmother spoke in poetry. We had, I, I allude to this in The Kite Runner, we had a very popular game in school it's called Sher Jangi, which literally means the battle of the poems. And essentially, you have two teams, and once one member of the one team recites a verse from a poem, and whatever letter that verse ends with, the other team has to recite a verse that begins with that letter. And I remember I used to be pinned against the entire class because I knew mm -hmm. so many poems. So it's um, part of, you grew up in Afghanistan, you are face-to-face -face with poetry from a very young age. I've seen it referenced when people who are new to, say, the ancient Greek poets, Homer, so say no one could ever memorize that much, the oral tradition, and they look at Farsi or Persian poetry, say we have living examples of what an oral tradition and how ingrained that, that kind of way of thinking can be. So you're in Kabul, in Paris, and then you come to the States, and you are thrown into the American educational system without a lot of English, as I understand it. Virtually, very little, virtually none, really. 
And then what is your story? Because I have a big gap in my research between this moment when you come to the US with very little English to writing a 25 page short story <laughs> that would become the kite runner. What are you doing? And how do you get from here to there? I have some more about then, but this period seems to be the biggest blank spot that I could find. I was mostly centered around building a life in the United States, learning English and settling on, on a responsible and sensible future. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a very good student in high school from day one. I learned English rather quickly. Mm. I climbed in the sort of the English classes year per year. So by my final year, my fourth year in high school, I was actually in humanities, which was the advanced mm. English class of in, a, in the senior class. So that's really where I really, really sank my teeth into the real the canonical Western work, beginning with the Greeks all the way down to for the, the medieval writers, Shakespeare, the Enlightenment, and going forth into existentialism and so forth. So that's really when I really, really, really came face to face with Western fiction in a really very intimate way. And, and then I never stopped reading, really. But it was never my idea to pursue reading or writing. I was Reading was always something that was very important to me because it fulfilled certain impulses and instincts and desires and needs that I had. But I was always focused towards, I was the firstborn son mm -hmm. of an immigrant family. And so I really had to choose from the holy trifecta of engineering, lawyering, or doctoring. There's a lot of budding artists in your novels. There's a lot of people who paint <laughs> or draw or write. And I can imagine there's a little bit of your, it doesn't sound like you didn't, though you weren't one of them, it sounds as a kid, or were you doing some writing and drawing even in notebooks or other places as a kid? No, I was definitely writing. I was writing as a kid in Kabul. In fact, the little short story in the Kite Runner that the protagonist Amir oh, right. writes for his the, his friend Hassan, the story about the man who finds a magic pearl and he finds that if he weeps and his tears drop into this magic cup, they turn into pearls. I'm sorry, the magic cup, they yes. turn into pearls. So that's, I remember reading that, I remember writing that story probably right at, around 1974 or so. And I remember okay. reading it to my father and him encouraging me. So I was always writing. I was really writing for myself. I would write plays. Like, for instance, we moved to France when I was 11, and we had other diplomats' kids who were our friends around my age, and at some get-togethers, and Afghans, they get together all the time. At dinner parties, I would write little plays, and we would stage them for the parents. So I always, and I would always tell stories and, and write them for myself, and then just trash them. It was just really the, I enjoyed the process of creating more than anything. The, the story in The Kite Runner that you refer to is maybe also your first experience or your representation of being edited, of someone saying, actually, there's a flaw in this, this scheme. <laughs> couldn't couldn't it just was it, cut onions and make the tears himself? I thought that was a really, a really funny moment. Okay, so you're reading, you're becoming a doctor, you're doing the building a stable, reliable life in the U.S. situation. I'm sure watching events in Afghanistan and Kabul the whole time. And you've told the story a couple times of seeing a story about the Taliban outlawing kite fights in, I think, 1999, and that being mm -hmm. the grain of sand around you. You wrote a 25-page paper. Could you tell more about that anecdote? What was it about seeing why that particular story? Yeah, <laughs> it was an old word processor. It was, I believe, in the spring of 1999, I was watching television. The Taliban had been in power in Kabul since 1996. And us in the Afghan community were, were very familiar with what was going on in Afghanistan. The American public at large was not and would not become familiar with it really until September 11th. 
Um, but this particular story was talking about all the sort of draconian restrictions that the Taliban were placing on Afghan life, particularly on Afghan women. <clears throat> and at some point, it's mentioned almost casually that they had also banned the sport of kite flying, which which really stuck with me as a small detail because it was it connected with me personally because I in Afghanistan in Kabul we had winter break we didn't have summer break so our school went from when spring summer fall and then you had three months off of winter because it snowed heavily and it was really difficult to get to school in that those three long months of winter we flew kites and we played games and so forth. But there's a lot of kite flying. And that mm. particular detail stuck with me. And I like turned off the TV. I went over to the work processor and I began writing what I thought was going to be this kind of very, I don't know, the fluff, nostalgic piece about those the bygone days of flying right. kites in Kabul. As I've said before, stories just direct their own course and they take they take they take over. And the story turned out to be far darker than I had intended. It was a story about this complicated friendship and became about guilt and redemption and forgiveness and so forth. And it really did not work at all as a short story. I made a half, half-hearted attempt at submitting it to a few places, but um, I ended up just shelving it. But that was the germ from which the novel was eventually born when I rediscovered the story in the spring of 2001, sometime in March of 2001, I read it again, and I thought it still doesn't work as a short story. But I think this is one of those plants that's too big for its base, mm. and the roots are too deep. This needs a far bigger sp- – and I, this may be that novel that I'd always romantically imagined myself writing and never really dared to do. I literally sat down. I woke up early in the morning every day, like around 4.30, 5 mm. o'clock in the morning, and I put the short story next to me, and I began expanding it into a novel. I, take over my it, it took over my life so probably the manuscript i'm guessing just took the next couple of years to to get into a position where you and then how was the agenting process like once you had something you wanted to show to other people how did you go about doing that did you have any connections did you cold pitch did you query how did you go about getting into the world where I, of publishing i began the novel in march of 2001 and finished it in june of 2002 okay uh, which seems to me astonishingly swift, <laughs> given that I was working full-time and had a full panel of patients. But I didn't know how books were published, so I went to a back then Borders, <laughs> which RIP, and I bought a book called How to Find How to Get Published. Yeah. And in that book, it said that to get published, you need to find a literary agent. So then I bought a book called How to Find a Literary Agent. And I submitted three, four chapters at a time to... I don't know, something like over 30 agencies. Yeah. I got rejected by all of them, yeah. except one, Elaine Coster, who made a very memorable phone call to me one day when I was at work. And that was the beginning of my publishing career. It's such a seminal moment for an author to have an agent say, let's do this. I see something. I'm going to work with you. Do you remember that feeling or what she said? It was surreal because as I said to you, by then I had been rejected by over 30 agencies all of which I took, I'm proud to say, fairly in stride because mm-hmm. I had fairly low expectations. <laughs> the only one that upset me, and this is a bit of a sidetrack, the only rejection that upset me, they didn't upset me because they were rejecting me, but they upset me for the reasons they, they rejected mm-hmm. me. And the reason was, this was June of 2002, the reason was this particular agency said that stories about Afghanistan are passe. We're looking at stories from Iraq, which... Uh, was very ominous to me for reasons that had nothing to do with my career, was ominous to me for what the future held for Afghanistan and, and what the priorities of the foreign, the, Af- the American foreign policy were. But outside of that, Elaine left me a message, Elaine Coster, 
who sadly passed away in 2010. She was a magnificent and a formidable woman. But I saw a patient at the clinic. I came, I saw a voicemail, I listened. And it's, in essence, she said, I'm Elaine. I'm an agent from New York. You queried me. You're going to be published. Your novel is going to be huge. And I want to be the one who represent you. Uh, I was stunned. Wow. I, must have listened. I, I think I listened to that message like, I don't know, more times than I care to admit. <laughs> and we connected. And she said, I already know where to go. I know exactly the editor and the publishing house where you belong. And uh, she said, Cindy Spiegel is the editor I want to go to. But she was, at the time, an imprint of Penguin. And and that's where we went. And so I, it all was happened so quickly that it was dizzying because one minute I was a Kaiser doctor seeing patients. And the next, I'm talking to this world-famous editor, an incredibly talented person. And it was wow. strange and bizarre and surreal. I'm just doing the math in my head. So it sounds like you were in the middle of writing the manuscript of the Kite Runner when September 11th happened, somewhere yes. in the manuscript stage. It affected everyone. I'm sure you had your own relationship to and, and worried about people and following world events. Did it occur to you that affected your literary career at all that would influence the story you were telling or how you'd be perceived? There's a, the geopolitical element that's hard to understand about what happened with your career in The Kite Runner and what would happen after. At the time that September 11th happened, I had no sort of any preconception or any ideas about a literary career. Okay. I was really writing this book for myself. Gotcha. I was writing to prove to myself that I, w I wasn't just limited to writing 25-page short stories, but I could write a longer piece. And I really wanted to write the story as a novel. Hmm. I would have been very happy just writing it and then okay. putting it in Manila and letting it sit in my garage. When September 11th happened, that kind of changed things in a couple of ways. First, it really... It really threw me off the writing track because sure. I experienced September 11th like, like most of us did as an American because I had lived in America by over two decades by then. But also as somebody who was born in Afghanistan who had a vested interest in what happened there. And I realized that this event is transformational now for Afghanistan. This is a, a, a seminal moment and it means probably more fighting, more war, more devastation, more displacement, but possibly with a happier outcome at the long end of it. I was very reluctant at that time to submit the book in any kind of publication. I really wanted to write it for myself. I worried that I would be perceived as a profiteer, as somebody who's capitalizing on a moment about Afghanistan. Uh, here's September 11th, Afghanistan suddenly in the news. Oh, and by the way, here's this guy who wrote a, this novel about Afghanistan. I didn't want to yeah. be that guy. Yeah. But I talked to my family and I realized that there was that there was other things that the book could do because so many of the stories centering around Afghanistan were about the Taliban right. or about the drug trade. It was it's really about bearded men doing violent things and living in caves. And that's what kind of what the American and really much of the international conception of Afghanistan was. But here was a book that talked about poetry and about life in Kabul before all of that, that gave a much more nuanced, textured human image of what being an Afghan was. And I thought that I came around to seeing that the moment called for that. And so I stopped writing the book for about three months, but I picked it up again in December of that year and finished it by June. And that was when I was fairly determined to submit it at least and see what happens. So Riverhead, they took it. How did the editing process go? How, how much happened there? What was the experience of having your, I don't know, hobby slash dream turned into more of a collaborative kind of a work. I loved it. I've always loved the editing process. I love working with editors. I think a really good editor can enrich you as a writer, can show you your own potentials and point you to things you may have missed. 
and show you the depth and the dimensions in your manuscript that you yourself may have not appreciated to its fullness. And that's what Cindy did. We agreed on the ending of the novel. It was a far darker ending than the one that the, which is hard to imagine because the kite runner is pretty gut-wrenching as it is. That one would have had people literally calling for the for a Prozac prescription. Mm. So we worked on that. I, I love the editing process. Cindy was just brilliant. And she helped me find my way through my own manuscript. I think the biggest thing that happened is a disaster that happened midway, really towards the end of the editing process. The book was due in December of 2002 to be published in spring of 2003. So I had to submit an entirely edited manuscript by December of that year. And two weeks before the novel was due, the the, the full edited manuscript was due, I lost the entire middle section of the book. <gasps> oh my this is God. in those days of floppy disks and word processors. And I came home one day and the floppy disk had gone corrupt. And there was nothing. The entire middle section of the book was lost into the ether, never be t- never to be retrieved again. So I had a real panic moment. I just sat down. I remember sweating and shaking, saying, oh, my God, what am I going to do? But it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I rolled up my sleeve and I started working. I was still working full time as a doctor. And so I came home from work like around six o'clock. And I would have a quick bite to eat. And I reimagined the middle section of the book. The, in the original manuscript that was bought by Riverhead, the entire middle section of the book is very different. There was wow. no Oreya, there was no General Tahiri, there was none of that flea market life, wow. there was none of that the little cobble, there was none of that, that, which I think is some of my favorite passages in the book in, in retrospect. So I began working from about 7, 7.30 at night until about 2 in the morning, wake up, go to work, come back, do it all. And in a span of two weeks, wrote the middle section of the Kydron, as your readers now know it. I think, I think to the great benefit of the manuscript. So that was, that was a potential disaster that turned into, I think, a real blessing in disguise. Because I think the novel gained a lot of richness and texture by having the middle section, the, essentially the Amir and Baba in America section of the story was reimagined. Did you write it without telling Cindy? I'm a coward. I would have not told Cindy. What was that phone call like to say, Cindy, I... No, I didn't uh, tell her because I was terrified. I was terrified because I, 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 I think she would have said, you moron, you backed it no. up only in... <laughs> how could you lose the novel? I, and I felt really stupid about it. I wouldn't have blamed her or Elaine for that. But when I submitted, finally, oh. the manuscript in December with the new chapters written, I think she was delighted because both of us had, I think, had misgivings about the middle section. The middle section. Of the book. Yeah. Neither one of, we thought, the, we, I thought as well as she did, that the earlier sections in Afghanistan, the first third of the book, were talking about Amir and Hassan's life in 1970s yes. Kabul, worked really well and was rich and was evocative. But the middle section lost some of that. But I think reimagining it and bringing flavors of Afghanistan and Kabul into Fremont, California, and having Amir be embedded in this world of the Afghan exile community really elevated the book. I can see that. I can see how the middle would have been tricky to figure out how do you enrich and expand without feeling like you're just taking a side plot from the central relationship that that initiates the book. I can see how that makes sense. Though I'm guessing you didn't do that to yourself for the subsequent books. You didn't throw out the middle halfway through just to be like, let's see if the same magic works again for uh, Mountains Echoed and Thousand no, Splendors. No, no. 
I do not recommend that <laughs> to any budding writers out there listening. <laughs> so it's the spring of 2003. You put in a Herculean effort to get the book together and it comes out in hardback and it immediately becomes a huge bestseller and you're off to the races, right? That's what happens? Yet. Yeah. They can't see on video that I'm smirking at you because that's not how it happens. How does it happen? I go on a book tour, which Riverhead was gracious enough to send me on. I went on a book tour in the United States and read largely to empty bookstores. Five or six people would show up. I my I, I write I wrote about this in the in the preface to the twentieth year edition of the Kite Runner. And I wrote that I did a, a reading in a, a bookstore in New Mexico where there were it was a large bookstore and the clerk god bless her had put out like 80 chairs and only three people showed up a couple and an elderly lady with a walker and they all three insisted that i read and so i went <laughs> to the lectern with a mic on no less and i read my my the usual passages and halfway through the reading the elderly lady got up and proceeded to walk past the lectern in in gut-wrenching pace, very slow. And and she made her way out of the bookstore. It was humbling. I think I had better audiences other places, yeah. but but it was a quick lesson in how the reality of book publishing is, which is at the end of the day, your book is another is just a book in a sea of books. There's so many. <laughs> yeah, debut fiction is pretty tough, especially when it's a very dark book that has a rather unsympathetic protagonist. Yeah. And it's set in a place that a lot of people know very little about. It was almost it was and a lot of the a lot of the really the characters with the more admirable traits die in the book. And so it's it's a, a textbook on how to write the anti-bestsellers. I had <laughs> <laughs> it didn't really it didn't really take off until about 15 months later. How did you feel about the book when it was out in the world? It seems like the critical responses was pretty good. I haven't read all the reviews, but it was, you know, people were giving it nice notices. How are you feeling about yourself as a writer while you're on tour while the hardback is coming out? Oh, I, I I was pleased with the reviews. I thought the reviews were was most were mostly really good. Yeah. But I was frustrated that I thought the book had something rather unique to say. And that it was buried beneath a lot of titles that that that, that yeah. had a different view. So I, I I rooted for it from the sidelines. I but mostly I immersed myself back in medicine. I was still while the book was in paper in hardcover for a whole year. I was working as a physician, I had a panel of patients I had a responsibility toward, mm -hmm. and so I just you no know, essentially I just went back to my life in medicine. I saw patients, and that was that. I thought a nice try. The book was reviewed. A few people read it, and that's great. And getting published was wonderful. I made a little money from it, so I was oh, that works. So that was that was it's, that, to me that was the end of the story. The paperback comes out 15 months later, and this is one of the great shrugs, or you know how these things happen. What was your experience? Did you have early whispers before it became the phenomena would become over the next six to 36 months? Yeah. So what happened was that while I was thinking, nice try, what was actually happening was that in libraries across the country, in independent bookstores across the country, people were actually reading it. And booksellers, librarians... And also librarians who were working on those community-wide reading projects were really reading this book and championing it and handing it to people. So there was this groundswell of word of mouth building, which was invisible to me at the time. But when it when the paperback hit, that groundswell finally broke surface. And suddenly, I remember quite 
distinctly walking into a coffee shop and seeing somebody reading my book in paperback, which was shocking. Was that the first time you'd seen someone reading your book out in the wild? That was the first time you'd ever seen some? Okay. Just organically. Just organically, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. I had received pictures on the internet from people who say, hey, I just saw somebody reading your book. But to me, to actually see it, that was the first time. And then I, I, my invitations went through the roof. Suddenly, people wanted me to speak at this university, at that university, at this library, that library. Community-wide projects really took off. And that was a, a very, I think, effective way of spreading mm. the word around the book. And suddenly, I thought I had published the book and I would move on. But suddenly, it looked like I might have two careers to contend with because <laughs> um, now suddenly the, everybody was reading this book. The real sort of anecdote I write about in, in the preface was I was, on a, I was on a plane going somewhere for an engagement, an event around the book. And I was sitting next to a woman who was reading my novel and she was dabbing at her eyes and reading this thing. And <laughs> I was tempted to strike up a conversation and I'm, I'm I think constitutionally a very private person. So in the end, that kind of stopped me, but that kind of that that kind of said, I think this book has arrived, yeah. and then it hit the New York Times bestseller list and it just squatted there for a long time. Two years, um, I so. believe it's on the New York Times bestseller list. What was the peak like when? And I, we, I don't have sales data in front of me, but when did it feel like it was at its everywhere? You're being requested everywhere. You're seeing it everywhere. What was that? That must have felt very strange. It was strange because I'm again I'm a constitutionally private person. I don't the public eye on me. I don't like being a center of attention. So on the one hand, it was culmination of really just a even if it was like unacknowledged to myself consciously, a combination of lifelong dream. Since I I wrote that little story in Kabul in 1974, here's another story I wrote, and now the whole world is reading it. So, so it was magnificent on that hand, but it also meant a lot of attention, and I also became for a while, the de facto person on all things Afghan to turn to. My opinion was sought on all sorts of things that I had little qualifications, really, frankly, to speak about. So I learned how to navigate those troubled waters. Eventually, I figured out how to do it by finding my own own foundation years Mm -hmm. later. But that was also something that that came around. So it was it was strange. It was wonderful and weird. I had I had I went to Isabel Allende's house and had dinner with her. Here it was like a literary icon, someone who had, who well before my book was read, was championing it single-handedly to people on her own book tour. And so I owe her a great day. I'll always love her. Uh, Isabel, if you're listening, I adore you and thank you. But yeah, I mean, it was <laughs> beyond strange. It's on the bestsellers for two years. It sells millions and millions of copies. At some point, you've got life decisions to make right? About, mm-hmm. are you going to continue with medicine? How are you going to be in the world? What were those internal discussions like? What was your own heart telling you? Were you When it started to take off, were you anxious to leave medicine? Were you torn? How did that happen? My dream always was to be a writer, but I never... I We came to the United States as refugees. We were on welfare for some time. And the idea that you could be broke and out on the street and destitute was not some kind of academic notion. It felt real. So I was always very sensible and responsible. So I wasn't about to just leave medicine and pursue writing. I'll tell you a funny anecdote. When I eventually did seem, okay, by late 2004, the Kaidan was selling very well. And I saw, okay, I can take a year off from medicine, I think. 
I can take a year off. And I was, I had already started having ideas about my second novel. I want to write that second novel. And I'd been, I had started working on it by late 2004. It eventually became A Thousand Splendid Sons. So I went to my mom and dad and I said, I think I'm going to leave medicine and pursue writing. I'm going to leave it for a year at least and write the second novel. <laughs> my, my mom, God bless her, said, oh, do you think that's a really good idea? You think you make a living from this? I said, I think I'm going to be okay. She said, I went to Costco and they didn't have your book. So I don't know how well you think you're doing. I think you may have set unrealistic expectations for your parents about what future sales would look. You should have broken out a royalty statement or something. Would she have believed you or is it Costco was the ultimate arbiter of whether my son my can feed himself? Royalty statements mean nothing. <laughs> so she went to Costco. I didn't see my book. She saw a lot of other books and she said, maybe you should stick to medicine. <laughs> so I took a year off. <laughs> and at the end of that year, I wasn't done with A Thousand Splendid Sons. So at that point, I went back to Kaiser and I spoke to them and I said, can I have another year? I said, we really can't. You need to either come back or resign. And so I did resign from medicine. And eventually when my second novel was published, to my mother's delight, she went to Costco and there it was. So I gained full street cred with her. And in her eyes, I think that was when I arrived. So it sounds like in your next book, you need to have Isabel Allende and the buyer at Costco to thank for giving giving you <laughs> the social proof you needed to keep That's going. Right. So you have an unbelievable success. You're a debut writer, but you're a reader your whole life. Were people in, well, your editor, your agent, were they talking to you about how this is a rare thing that was happening with the Kite Runner? Did you understand at the time that this is unusual to happen? And did that influence how you're thinking about what your next book was going to be, how to understand the rest of your career? Because it, these things don't happen very often, and they certainly don't happen no, twice very often. It's funny you mentioned that because I'll be in New York in, in, in a week or so, a little more, and I'll be on a panel that talks specifically about that issue of the second mm. novel. I knew that it, this was highly unusual. My agent and my publishers had told me that this is not the usual scenario for how a first novel from a completely unknown person who has virtually no connection whatsoever to the literary had world. Had to buy a book at Borders to get in here. That's You couldn't have yeah, this. Yeah. It was as, as out of the left field as it gets. Yeah, so I, I understood that, but maybe because I wasn't in the writing world, maybe because I wasn't in New York and part of mm. the literati, because I didn't live in the world of agents and publishers and reading all the the magazines and so forth, that I, I think eventually, to my own benefit, went into the writing of the second novel kind of naive in a way, and that, hey, I didn't feel really the pressure of the public or the agency or the publisher. I went into it with, I'm going to, I'm writing another book. And I don't think, I don't think this one will, will do either because I don't think this one will do well because I, it's pretty dark and it, it deals with a very difficult subject and it's, it's a gut wrenching read, but I was fairly determined to write that book because I felt that book, the thousands of sons had a really riveting subject matter to address and one that was important to me personally as not just a writer, but also as somebody who cared about Afghanistan, who cared about Afghan women, mm. and who had visited Afghanistan in 2003 and spoke spoken to a lot of women and heard the stories and had been humbled and transformed by them. So I felt this was a story worth telling. But again, I, I wrote it as if no one else was going to read it. Yeah, And in some way, I think just writing it for myself and telling myself 
that particular story and kind of writing the book almost as an act of duty. Like I had to write this book. A thousand a kite runner was really set in the world of in the male world, in the world mm-hmm. of men. The love triangle between the three main characters. It really was set in the world of men. And I felt like there's this entire other aspect of Afghan life that I haven't really touched on and one that's meaningful and riveting to me personally that I felt like I should that I wanted to write about. Again, the success of A Thousand Splendid Sons was the degree of the success that that book experienced was another massive surprise to me. Yeah. It sold very well. You start working with the UN, I think, in 2006, 2007, around that time, and you now have a career, and you're a persona, you have a foundation, you're in the world. And I guess through all of it, you know, the book, The Kite Runner, I still see it. I see it in the little free libraries. I see it at the bookstore. I see people reading it, encountering it for the first time still. What's your own relationship to the book at this point? Do you think about the book? Do you? How do you feel about how it went? How do you feel about the whole experience at this point? I'm deeply fond of it. I think of it as a lovable, flawed child. Let me explain it this way. I was contacted a number of years ago by a charity auction that wanted me to annotate a copy of The Kite Runner and submit it for, I think it was Tiffany's, and to submit it for an auction for charity. Obviously, I agreed. And I I actually read the book for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as I was reading it, it was like reconnecting with a younger version of myself, of seeing myself in those pages. And I was deeply moved by many passages. And I was proud of how I had pulled many things off mm-hmm. in the book. I was swept up in the story and and said, ah, this is a riveting story. And there were many passages and parts where I said, ah, oh, can I cringe? And I said, what am I doing? What was I thinking? Or I should have done this way or that way. And so it was this a very surreal experience of, of it's like listening to your own voice. On, yeah. on kind of, You connect to it and you cringe. It's like seeing old photographs of yourself. There's something nostalgic and there's something, uh, you're moved by seeing uh, the younger, older version of yourself. And because you you place yourself in that time and place and you remember what that person was thinking and feeling and the stage of life they were in. And there's great fondness for that. At the same time, you're like, you really shouldn't have worn that shirt. <laughs> Those shoes are awful. What were you thinking? There's a literary equivalent of that. That's right. So it was a kind of a fraught experience, but an educational one. So I love the kite runner. On a serious note, I'm quite, I think the ultimate legacy of this for me will be that for many people, and I'm not sure this is a good thing or a bad thing, but on balances, I see the benefits of it. But for many people, Afghanistan was a this far-flung, enigmatic, violent place. And the kite runner placed it on their consciousness, on the map of their psyche and said, hey, this is a place with people with dreams, with hopes, with disappointments, people who are complicated and who have many of the same conflicts as anybody, and be it in Des Moines or Tel Aviv or in Paris. It humanized people. And I think at the end of the day, when I'm long gone, I think that I could live with that legacy, that for its fl- for all of its flaws or for whatever it is, I think the Kite Runner did help connect readers to Afghanistan in a more complicated, in a more nuanced way. And if people perked up when the news about Afghanistan showed up on television and felt a more personal connection to that new story, that's that has value to me. Thanks again to Khaled Hosseini for taking the time. 
Thanks to Jen Dilling at Riverhead for making this possible. Thanks to Caitlin Brem here at Book Riot for special production assistance. Shoot me an email, first edition at bookriot.com. Also check the show notes. You can follow first edition on Twitter, Instagram. There's even a newsletter that I'm messing around with. And when the time comes, there's that 20th anniversary edition coming out in the fall. And if you've got an idea for another bookography, I'm looking. I'm looking for candidates. There's a lot out there, but uh, give me your ideas as well. Until next time, read something great. Mm-hmm.